If you would, take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. We'll be reading starting in verse 10. Hear now the Word of the Lord. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for another Lord's Day in which we can gather as your people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, made your children because of Christ's work. Father, we pray now that as we again set our eyes upon the Savior, and his words, and we hear from him that you would be working in us to sustain our faith in Christ, that you would be building our faith in such a way that continues to keep our eyes upon him all the days of our life. Father, I pray that as the word goes forth today, that it would go forth in power, not because they are my words, but because your word is spoken. I pray that it would not return void, that it would conform your people to the image of Christ, and that it would work power in those who don't know you, that their eyes might be open to the truth of who he is and the glory of your Son. So, Father, we ask that you'd come in power now as your word is preached. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back with you again. Well, I want to start off our time with kind of a, a subjective question for you. If you were to think about it, what would you say is the most widely known Bible verse in our day, in our culture? If we were just to go out and ask random people on the street if they could quote a single Bible verse, what do you think they would come up with? Now, perhaps, there is a time in our country when I think John 3.16 would be the most quoted verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And there may have even been other well-known verses, if you go further, far enough back, some, there may have been a time when even things like Romans 3.23 may have been a popular verse, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Truly, there was a time when the knowledge of verses like that were commonplace in our country, in our culture. And sadly, I, I don't think that's still true. I don't think that is the day in which we live. I think today, today, in our day, the answer you most likely would come up with in our culture is actually Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not, that you be not judged. And of course, almost always, that verse is just ripped out of context and completely misunderstood and completely misapplied. And many take that to mean that Jesus was issuing a wholesale prohibition against all judging, and therefore we are not to make any moral judgments against anyone ever. Yet, ironically, it is often used in an attempt to judge Christians for making judgments. 
The fact is, to see that verse as a wholesale prohibition against judgment is a ridiculous conclusion that does not take into consideration the rest of the verse in which Jesus exhorts one to take the log out of his own eye so that he can see clearly enough to take the speck from his brother's eye. Jesus' words were aimed at, at hypocritical judgment, or a judgment in which one uses themselves as the standard by which others should be judged. He was not at all issuing a prohibition against all judgment. And we see that that has to be the case in our passage here today, where Jesus actually exhorts his audience to judge, but to do it rightly. You see, it's, the fact is, it's impossible to live in this world and not make judgments. We make judgments all the time about what we believe to be right or wrong, what we believe to be moral or immoral, what we believe to be true or false. And we, and we must. We, we must make judgments. We have to make judgments about that which comes into our life. We can't pretend like we don't. But the Scripture exhorts us that we are to be careful to judge righteously, to judge rightly. And the most important judgment that anyone will ever make is the judgment that we will make about Jesus Christ. That is a judgment that has eternal ramifications, but it is a judgment that one must make. And in our day, there are a thousand different opinions about who he was and about what he came to do. And as we will see in the text today, that was the same in his day. But you can really actually just reduce it all down to, to two options. Either he was who he said he was, or he was not. There's, there's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. There's no middle road. Everyone must pick one of the two. And sadly, in Jesus' life and ministry, the great majority of those who came in contact with him misjudged him, as we will see here today. As we continue on in John's Gospel in chapter 7, we have come to the passage in which Jesus is now going to make his appearance at this feast at just the right time in the midst of all of the hostility that is raging against him. And upon his appearance, he's going to get into a public back and forth with his accusers, with the Jewish leadership, as well as the crowd. And the intensity of his opposition is just continuing to rise through all of this. And the people, both, both the, the crowds and the leaders, have all already made judgments about him. And Jesus is going to start out his time at this feast heading, hitting those head-on as he addresses their presuppositions or assumptions about him. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Jesus publicly addressing three judgments, three assumptions that have already been made about Christ. In some sense, this is a public defense to public judgments. And as he makes this defense, we will see all the more why there is none like Jesus. Jesus' claim was that he was fundamentally a different man than anyone else. In a category all on his own. And in that, we're going to see all the more why there's only two options. He is either a liar and a deceiver and a fraud. Or he is who he says he is. You know, for us as, as Christians, as we, as we look at this scene... We need to remember that the Christian life is first and foremost about endurance in our faith. It is about trusting in who Jesus is and who Jesus says he is from the very beginning of our faith to the very end. Every true believer ought to have it as your highest aim in life to make it to your deathbed while still trusting in your Savior. There, there, is, there is nothing more important than that. And as we feed our faith today by, by coming back to who he, who he is, I hope that hearing His words afresh, seeing your Savior afresh, would cause you to trust Him 
afresh, would build towards that faith that endures until you reach your deathbed. I pray that his, his words would have that effect on all of our hearts here today. That as he graciously gives a defense to this unjust people about his own divine character, that our faith would be renewed and strengthened as we listen on. So let's look at this scene. And before we get to his address to these judgments, John once again sets the stage for us starting in verse 10. So let's look at that. Look at verse 10. It says, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So if you remember from last week, Jesus had been challenged by his unbelieving brothers to take advantage of this feast in which all the pious Jews would be gathered and to use it as an opportunity to show the world what he could do. It was not a suggestion from those who believed in who he was or believed in what he was doing, but on the contrary, it was actually a provocation from those who did not believe in him. And sadly, it was coming from his own family, his own brothers. But Jesus would not take the bait. He rebuffed them and let them know that he would not be going according to their suggestion. Rather, he would when the time was right, when his time had fully come, which was not yet. See, Christ was on a divine timetable established by his Father in heaven, and therefore everything he did mattered. The timing mattered, and he would not even push the timetable up a couple of days. And if we were just to speculate a little bit, I would assume much of the reason for his delay here would be for the obvious reason that he was a wanted man. As John said back in verse 1 of chapter 7, the Jews were seeking to kill him. So much so that he lets us know here in verse 11 that they were going around looking for him, asking people, where is he? They were after him. And so, for that reason, Jesus did not go up publicly. He did not go up with the caravan of his family, which would have been pretty much the traditional way that one would have gone. And likely, if he did that, they would have seen Christ coming and they would have tried to head him off, to arrest him on the spot before he had a chance to perform any kind of miracles or open his mouth and begin any kind of teaching. Because once the crowd gets involved, it becomes a lot more complicated for the Jewish leadership. But obviously, the, the whole Jewish community was abuzz about Jesus. There was much muttering going on about him, and, and they were divided. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, he's a deceiver. Really, both of those conclusions were actually just two different forms of unbelief. Those who say he is a good man are simply demonstrating an awareness of his character, but not his divine nature. They were not trusting in his person. They were not entrusting themselves to Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And the other group held that the view that would become the, the dominant view among the Jews after the resurrection, which was that he was a deceiver leading people astray. In fact, that is still the predominant view among Orthodox Jews today. But all of this was being muttered under the surface in, in whispered tones and in private conversations. It certainly was the topic du jour it was a topic on everyone's mind, but there was no open debate or dialogue going on. As John says in verse 13, For fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. This shows us a couple of things. First, it shows how much Jewish leadership, had the religious leadership of the day, had a stronghold over the people of the time. The common people did not want to transgress their leadership. And they were aware of the hostility towards Christ. It was at a, a boiling point and everyone knew it. But it also shows 
that despite the fact that some had concluded that he was a good man, they were not believing. And John does not, throughout this gospel, present those who have private views of Jesus as a good thing, as we will continue to see as the gospel progresses. Because the fact is, true faith in Christ cannot be controlled by the fear of man, nor can it be silenced. And Jesus even addresses this in Matthew chapter 10. When talking about the persecution that his disciples would receive from both Jews and Gentiles and even their own families, he said this. He said, Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. See, the truth is, you you cannot have one private opinion of Jesus, a private faith, but then a very different public opinion of Jesus out of the fear of man. If you are ashamed of Christ in private, but you trust him, or ashamed of Christ in public, but you trust him in private, It's evidence that you actually don't trust him at all. Rather, it shows that you fear man more than you fear God. And without question, that that is the scene that is painted here. Some were intrigued with Christ, having heard his teaching, and perhaps maybe even seen some of his miracles, but they feared man more than they feared God. And that fear of man was dictating their belief in Christ. So that's the the scene of the feast. Jesus is on everyone's mind. The leaders are looking for him, looking to kill him, and the people are whispering about him, but no one has the boldness to speak openly about him. And it is in the middle of all of this that Christ shows up. Look at verse 14. It says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple, and he began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus finally makes his his public appearance at the feast. Not in the way that his brothers had suggested, but no doubt at the perfect time, in the perfect way, as ordained by the Father. By this action, Jesus shows that he was in no way afraid to die. His, his hesitation to go out, as his brothers had suggested, was not out of fear. Because now, all of a sudden, his anonymity is gone in an instant. The one who everyone has been whispering about and the one the leaders have been searching for just appeared to everyone in the temple courts. And further, by assuming the role of teaching in the temple courts in the middle of the most attended feast, Jesus was making a statement about his divine authority to do so. Because the fact of the matter is, unbeknownst to everyone there, this is his temple. And these are actually his people. And he is the eschatological fulfillment of the very festival that they are celebrating. He is the presence of God tabernacling among his people in this very moment. Now, the Jews obviously do not recognize all of this. They are oblivious to who is standing before them. But they do recognize that he is making some kind of claim to authority here as he teaches openly in the temple at the feast. So much so that it says that they marveled at what he was doing. Or another way to translate that or say that was they were astonished or amazed. Now, this isn't, this isn't meant to be taken in a positive light. 
Again, by way of reminder, when John says the Jews here, he's specifically speaking of Jewish leadership in this context. And they were not astonished because they were so impressed and excited by what he was saying. They were amazed because they were perplexed and they were taken off guard. Because not only were they surprised with the, the boldness displayed as Jesus just comes out into the open, they also held Jesus to be an uneducated nobody from nowhere. He was a son of a commoner. He was a country bumpkin from Nazareth. Yet he could carry on extended discourses and expositions of the Word of God like nothing they had ever heard. And so they ask, how is this man, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied For them, this didn't make sense. Jesus had not been through their system. He had not attached himself to any of their rabbis and devoted himself to learning the traditions of the great rabbis of old. This is what it took to assume the role of a teacher in this culture for the Jews. In in their religious system, he had no formal office. He had no formal training. And yet here he was speaking with an authority that gripped his listeners and captivated his audiences and it was an authority that did not include the quoting of the most respected jewish rabbis throughout the generations which jews were prone to do always appealing to the rabbinic tradition to establish their authority but jesus spoke with a different authority he spoke with an inherent authority an absolute authority And they were attempting to bring that into question. They're questioning his credentials, attempting to undermine his teaching, really in order to protect their own. But Jesus responds to them, and he responds to several different judgments that both the Jewish leaders and the crowds had made against him. They had judged him to be teaching on his own authority, They had judged him to be seeking his own glory, and they had judged him to be a breaker of the law. And Jesus addresses all three of these in his response. And the fact is, it's actually the exact opposite that was true. None of this was true of Christ, but all of it was true of the Jewish leadership. So let's look at this. Let's look at his response. Look at what he says Verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So Jesus starts with their immediate question pertaining to the authority of his teaching. Because he did not fall in line with their Traditions, they simply dismissed him, dismissed his teaching out of hand. To not root your teaching in Jewish precedent, to be original, was not smiled upon. It was to be seen as an arrogant independence from what was established. And therefore, there was, there was no wrestling with the truth of what he was actually saying. The content is not even examined. They just question his lack of a study and therefore his lack of authority. So Jesus responds by telling, him, telling them the source of his teaching. Because they're, they're partially right here. He, he didn't come up with this from studying rabbinic tradition and rabbinic authority. But it was not because he was being inventive. Or original. And he tells them that. My teaching is not my own. Well, then where does it come from? But it is his who sent to me. He tells them right out that his teaching comes directly from God the Father who sent him. You talk about a trump card. You want to appeal for all your rabbis for your authority? My teaching comes from God. Who, by the way, is the one who sent me? That's the source of my authority. Essentially, what Jesus is saying here is that his teaching was unlike anything that had ever come before. 
even different than the prophets, the faithful prophets, who were relaying messages from God by saying, Thus saith the Lord. Jesus was not saying his teaching was like theirs. No, he was saying that all of his teaching was inherently divine. Everything Jesus said was divine. Everything he did was divine. It was not sourced from the earth. It was sourced from heaven. He was in all of his speech, in all of his works, in everything he did, a perfect representation of the Father. He was the Word of God made flesh. And he had already told them back, this back in chapter 5. Truly, truly, I, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Everything Jesus does is what the Father is doing. So Jesus is saying that none of his teaching, nothing he did, was independent from the Father. Not even his actions. The Son's actions and the Son's words were always divine in everything he did and said. He himself was the message of the Father. You see, this is why no one can claim that Jesus, Jesus is just a good guy or he's a good teacher. He does not leave that option. He's not just giving good advice or wise counsel. He claims his own words to be divine, and he claims himself to be dispatched from heaven. He does not leave the option of a good man, as many in the crowd were saying, and as many people even today will still say. And yet he, he doesn't even stop there. He takes it further by giving a remarkable criterion by which one can know the truth about the source of his words. Look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Now, when you think about what he just said, it's really actually kind of jarring. Because you would think, just, just logically speaking, that he would say something to the opposite effect. Something like, if anyone accepts my teaching, he will be doing God's will. Or, if anyone accepts my teaching, his will will be in line with God's will. But that's not what he said. He said, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. It appears what Christ is saying here is that knowledge does not precede the orientation of the will. Actually, the orientation of the will precedes knowledge. Now, what is he saying by this? Well, first of all, he's saying that the truthfulness of his teaching and his person is actually self-evident, self-authenticating. It's obvious to those who have ears to hear. Those who have ears to hear have no question about the origin or authority of his teaching. And by implication, he is saying that those who are challenging him do not have ears to hear. Their will is not to do God's will, and therefore they do not have the ability to discern the truthfulness of his teaching. As one commentator said, the Jews challenge Jesus' ability to teach, but Jesus challenges their ability to hear. They could not discern the self-evident truth that is standing before them. But the question still remains, well, then who can? Who is it whose will is to do God's will? What does he mean here by doing God's will? Is this just an ethical demand? If one has made a sincere decision to, to do things God's way, can they then see the truth? Is that what he's saying? No. Because the truth is, we know that no one naturally has a heart that is oriented towards God, towards God's will. I mean, we saw this in the prologue. This is why John stated right from the beginning that when Jesus came into the world, the world did not know him, and he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Neither Jew nor Gentile have hearts oriented towards God. Actually, we all have hearts oriented away from God. Well, then how does one get there? This is all hearkening back to the foundation that Jesus laid with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you must be born again. You need a new heart. You need a new will. The natural man cannot discern even that which is self-evident. 
But the one who is spiritual, the one who has been born from above, has been given a heart towards God that sees the truth of Christ and knows the truth of who He is and the truth of what He teaches and receives Him as their own. It's self-evident to those who have been born from above. And John made this clear from the very beginning as well. After speaking of everyone who naturally rejects Christ, he said, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. Well, who are they? Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, the, the truth is, Because we are so marred by sin, apart from God, we don't even have the ability to see that which is obviously true. Worldly hearts cannot assess heavenly realities. Which means we are all, every one of us, utterly dependent upon the grace and mercy of God. And this is nowhere more evident than with the Jews, the most religious of all people who studied God's word more than anyone in the world at the time and could not discern the truth or authority of what Jesus was saying. Because despite their religiosity, they were not really desiring to do God's will. They studied God's word with corrupt hearts, and their hearts were not oriented towards God. Which leads right into the second thing that Jesus addresses, which is the question of of motive. And this is something we see leveled at him repeatedly. He was raised in John 5. We saw it even with his own brothers last week. We will see it again in John 8. They all believe Jesus to be driven by a desire for his own glory, for his own exaltation. And Jesus goes right after that again here. Look what he says, verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. See, by this statement, Jesus is is further separating himself from his opponents in giving another criterion by which one can be assessed. See, Jesus was assumed to be speaking on his own authority and seeking his own glory, but in reality, the absolute opposite was true. It was the Jewish leadership who spoke on their own authority and sought their own glory. Oh yes, they often quoted so-and-so in their line of tradition, but it was all their authority, the authority of the rabbinic order, not the authority of God. And each one of them wanted to be one of those authoritative voices that was revered and referred to and remembered. Their religion had become about honor-seeking. They did not fear God. They did not tremble at His Word. Instead, they sought to use God and their surface knowledge of the law to gain admiration and honor among the Jewish communities. And don't think that that type of behavior has disappeared either, even among Christians. There is so much self-promotion that goes on in our religious world and system, even among our own circles. Just glance at social media for a minute and you will see it everywhere. Be very wary of those who are constantly seeking to elevate themselves, no matter how sound or helpful you may find their teaching. But we should also not just be aware of it out there, but also in here. Because this is a tendency in all of our hearts, is it not? I actually believe this to be the fundamental problem of humanity. It is that we are all oriented to ourselves rather than to the one who created us. We would rather hear people make much of us than much of God. I mean, is this not what caused the fall? Satan appealed to Eve with the temptation that she would be like God. And in that desire, she ate. And Adam ate. And now, all of us who are born of Adam are all born with a taste for the glory of self rather than the glory of God. Now, 
praise be to God that when we receive new hearts, God reorients us towards Him. The heart of a true Christian lives for the glory of God. However, we still have to fight this in our flesh. And we need to be aware of it, even in our service to Him or our service to one another, that we, we fight the desire to do these things for our own glory, for our own recognition, rather than for His glory, for His recognition. It is an ever-present temptation in the heart of every sinner. But as Paul says, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That's what should be driving the true Christian. And that motivation, that driving purpose, according to Christ in verse 18, marks the one who is true. And there has actually only ever been one man who truly lived that out in every aspect, in every moment of his life, without even a, without even a hint of mixed motives. They thought Christ was after the glory of self, but nothing could be further from the truth. Now, you, you, you may think, well, wait a minute. Did not Christ receive glory and exaltation for what he did? Yes, he did. But that's not what drove him. That's not why he came. In fact, he already had that prior to his coming. Rather than seeking glory, he actually laid aside his glory, the glory that was rightfully his, in order to come. It is the exact opposite of what they accused him of. As, as Paul says in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus was not after his own glory. Glory was already his. He came for the glory of his Father. And he lived that out perfectly, with no mixed motives at any moment of his ministry or his life. Jesus was perfection personified. There truly is none like this man. This is why he can say, in him, there is no falsehood. Who else could say such a thing? Christ can. Which leads right into the last judgment that they had made about him, that he was a, he was a lawbreaker. Now, this is how they were justifying their, their intent to kill him. They had deemed him a breaker of the law, when in fact, one more time, the exact opposite is true. Look at what he says in verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus starts off this subject by actually turning the tables on them. Now they had a challenge and accused him, but now Jesus challenges them. And he challenged them by raising a known fact that they all boasted in. The Jews were notorious for the fact, boasting for the fact that they were the recipients of the law, that Moses had given them the law. Through Moses, the law had come to them. Now, Paul even calls them in Romans chapter 2, those who boast in the law. Being the recipients of God's law for them was a part of their identity. And they saw it as a marker of God's affirmation in their lives. And they bo boasted in their possession of the law as a result. But very ironically... Very much what they were boasting in was their condemnation. That which they were boasting in is that which condemns them. Because as Jesus said, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps it. Not a single one. They were all, every single one of them, lawbreakers. And they knew it. Despite the facade that they kept up for public life, they knew the corruption of their own hearts. And Jesus just calls them out on it. He calls them on the carpet. None of you, not one of you, keeps the law that you're boasting in. And then after making that public declaration, he strategically asks them on the heels of it, why are you seeking to kill me? 
Essentially, Jesus just turned their own guns on them, and he's daring them to pull the trigger. They were seeking to kill Jesus because they had deemed him to be a lawbreaker when they were all the actual lawbreakers. None of you keeps the law of Moses. Why, why are you trying to kill me again? Now, I think this, this charge hit home with some people because of the way they respond. This, this crowd is, is clearly miffed at Christ, at what he said. Look at their response. Verse 20. The crowd answers, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? This thing is heating up. In defense of the charges that Jesus just laid out against them all, the crowd deems him to be demon-possessed. Essentially, they're just, they're just trying to write him off. They're saying he's out, he's out of his mind. But their question of, of who is trying to kill you betrays, I think, one of two things. Either a small segment of people asked this question who were outsiders who pilgrim, pilgrim, on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem who have absolutely no idea what's going on, or this question was not asked honestly. And I think context would lend to the latter. Because John lets us know that the Jews were looking for him. So much so that they're going around, they're asking everyone, where is he? Everyone was aware. No one even felt comfortable enough to speak openly for fear of the Jews. There is some serious hostility in the air, and everyone was aware of it. And then in verse 25, we're going to see that some of the crowd even asked, is this not the man they're seeking to kill? They knew. This was, it wasn't a secret. I don't think this was an honest question at all. This was a dishonest question meant to discredit Christ after he exposed their guilt and the Jews' hypocritical desire to kill him. Jesus doesn't get distracted with their outlandish accusations and their outlandish question. He presses on to show them why what he did was actually no violation of the law. The charges that were against him were false. They were bogus. And he's going to demonstrate that. Look at verse 21. Jesus answered him, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well. So Jesus, what he's doing here, is really employing an argument from the lesser to the greater. And he's using circumcision as an example. When he says, I did one work and you all marvel, he's, he's actually hearkening back to the miracle from John chapter 5. When he healed the 38-year invalid at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day. And again, uh, the word marvel here is not being used in the positive sense. They were, they were not even marveling at the miracle when he performed it. They were astonished that he did it on the Sabbath day. They were outraged that he healed a man in such a way that violated their teachings about the law. And it was because of that healing that he was charged with breaking the law, breaking the Sabbath, and they were seeking to kill him. So Jesus brings in circumcision here to show their hypocrisy. You see, circumcision was, was codified in the, in, in the law of Moses. But it actually preceded the law. It preceded Moses. God gave it to the patriarchs prior to Moses. But nonetheless, it was, it was a part of the law. And the requirement was for every born Jewish male on the eighth day of his life, he was to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant. If he was not, God told Abraham that he would be cut off from his people. A little play on words there from God. Now, the problem for the Jews was when the eighth day fell on the Sabbath. At that point, which, which law do you obey? Do you, do you keep the Sabbath, or do you circumcise the child? Now, rabbinic tradition, the Mishnah, had held and practiced that the need to circumcise on the eighth day overrode the Sabbath. It was justifiable to care for the infant by applying the sign of circumcision, suspending the Sabbath, the sign of the covenant, even on the Sabbath day. 
And the Jews, as Jesus said, did this regularly. This was their practice, to suspend the Sabbath in order that the law may not be broken. And they did this for necessary acts of mercy and for ritual rites. And Jesus is making them face the fact that even in their hard-lined, legalistic interpretation of things, that there was a hierarchy of precedent. That there were times when one need overrode another. And if they were willing to do that, to care for one member of a man's body, how much more justifiable is it to care for the whole body? That is the argument. It is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If you do the same thing for circumcision, why are you angry at me for making a man's whole body well? It was an unrighteous judgment against Christ based upon a legalistic and hypocritical interpretation of the law. Which is why Jesus leaves them with this final exhortation in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. See, Jesus was no violator of the law, and he just, he just demonstrated that. And anyone who would judge him righteously according to the word of God rather than snap assumptions based upon the appearance of things would have come to that conclusion. And Jesus was not telling them not to judge here. And in the context, he's actually specifically speaking about judging him. They were to judge him. They had to make a judgment about him. But judgment must be handled with care. And it must, be go, it must go beyond just the mere outward appearance of things and get at the heart of the matter. For this is how God judges. We know that. Man judges by outward appearances, but God looks on the heart. In fact, many believe that there's even a subtle allusion here to the character of the prophesied Messiah and his judgment from Isaiah chapter 11 with regard to how he will judge. 11 Isaiah 11.3, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. We must all seek to judge righteously according to God's word, according to God's principles. And if the crowd had applied this not only to Christ, but to their own religious leaders, they would have seen a lot more clearly that the outward appearance of righteousness that was displayed by the Jews was merely a facade to cover up their hearts of unrighteousness. And the supposed outward appearance of unrighteousness in Christ was anything but. There's only one man who never broke the law. Which is why Jesus can defend himself and simultaneously cast a sweeping but right judgment on everyone else. Not one of you keeps the law. See, here's the thing. Understand that Jesus is not telling them this and defending himself in order to say that he is better than them. That's, that's, not, that's not his purpose. He's telling them this out of mercy for them, so that all may see our need of Him. He is later on going to say to the same crowd, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Jesus is offering Himself to this crowd, but they must see rightly who He is first, and they must see rightly who they are first in order to see their need of Him. He is the righteous offering himself for the unrighteous. Christ came and kept the law so that the law might be fulfilled in all who trust in him. Christian, if you are trusting in Christ, you have righteous standing before God for this reason. Not because of your life or your perfections, but because of Christ's life in his perfections. There is none like this man. And that is why we must keep trusting in Him. We must never look to ourselves or appeal to our own relative goodness. It is Christ and Christ alone. There is hope in nobody else. You have failed and you will continue to fail 
all of your life, but Christ never fails. And He has given Himself freely to sinners like you and me who will simply trust in who He is. Keep trusting, Christian. Press on in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ until your deathbed. And if you have never trusted, if you have never trusted Christ, the righteous one, offers himself to you today. Realize who you are. You are a breaker of the law. And apart from Christ, you are an enemy of God. But the righteous one is offering himself in your stead today, this moment. If you trust in him, his righteousness is yours. And your unrighteousness was paid for in Calvary. Trust in Christ. And your sins will be washed away. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the glory of the gospel. Thank you that he came and lived out perfection. Thank you that he sought to glorify you in every moment of his life. And he achieved that. Thank you that he offers himself to guilty sinners who are not deserving. Thank you that you have bestowed grace on us through your son. God, I pray for more grace. Sustaining grace. Persevering grace that each one of us would continue in the faith and trust in Christ all the days of our life. Thank you for your son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.